This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I wanted to start out uh, first disclosing uh, some of my eye tracking technology. I'll be talking with you today. It's actually licensed through the University of California. Um, I wanted to start out my lecture by honoring individuals with autism. Uh, Despite barriers that individuals face, there are people who have managed to achieve great things, have found their hopes and dreams. Like, for example, we've got Stephen Wheelchair. He's a great artist. You can see his work all over the Internet. He's extremely famous. Of course, we've got Temple Grandin. You know, she has achieved heights as a scientist, as an author. Um, We've got Ayush Babani, who's an amazing illustrator. Uh, But unfortunately, these individuals are more of the exception than the rule. Many individuals with autism may live their lives and may not have the opportunity to fulfill their hopes and dreams. Um, We know from the most recent report from the Centers for Disease Control published by Maynard and colleagues in 2023, 61% of individuals with ASD have IQs below 85. And we know from other studies that 50 to 80% of individuals with autism are unemployed or underemployed as adults. So that is what motivates me. What, what can we do to help? And before we can figure out what we can do to help, we have to understand biology. Um, first, we need to understand that the brain is extremely plastic during early development. Our ability to change and re-sculpt neural connections actually decreases with age. And if we look at this really old-fashioned but awesome slide by Connell from 1939, this shows frontal lobe uh, circuitry going from the newborn age up to two years in age. And you can see when a baby is born, these are cells in frontal cortex, which is a really important part of your brain for you know, social interactions and language and quick thinking. Um, you know, The cell bodies are super tiny. By one month, they're still tiny. By six months, you're seeing some local connectivity start to emerge. And by two years of age, there's a whole web of connectivity that's happening in this part of the brain. But when do kids with autism generally across the United States... We're not talking San Diego because we've got universities or L.A. where there's a lot of innovations and early detection. But average across the U.S., kids are not getting identified and referred out for help until age three to five. Um, But my whole work is motivated by the idea is like, what if we could create standardized programs to find kids who need some help and have them, you know, get identified and get treated before all the circuitry is happening so we can shape positive connections? What if we tried to have the optimal age for treatment be around the first birthday? And there's a lot of research to suggest this is actually a very good idea. If you look at studies that look at children who were born with severe hearing loss or who are deaf, and you give them a cochlear implant before they're 18 months old, and those are represented by um, orange circles, or after they're 18 months old is represented by a blue triangle, or you never give them cochlear implants, here's what you see by the time they're in school. These are all measures of language and math and reading and all the things that we all need to succeed in a school environment. Again, the kids who got that help before they were 18 months can see these little uh, orange circles and the 100% standardized score, which is a really good score that's average, they're exceeding. They are thriving in school because they got their intervention before 18 months. Same story for kids that were abandoned in orphanages. There's a really famous study by Chuck Nelson and colleagues that appeared in Science. Their babies were born in Romania. Unfortunately, they were put in like a really impoverished institution, not given a lot of support, not given a lot. Um, but babies got out of that institution into, for- into foster care at different ages either when they were 0 to 18 months, all the way up to 30 months or plus. If you look at the IQs of the babies that didn't get out of that institution until they were 30 months old, their IQ is like 80. 
But you look at the babies who got out and put into placement between 0 and 18 months, it's 95. That's 15 points. Um, same story is going on with autism. There are some studies, a new study out by Guthrie, showing that children who receive treatment at around 18 months actually had receptive language ability scores that were 10 points higher uh, in a T-score on the Mullen Scales of Early Learning than children who got their treatment started later. So my whole kind of national crusade is to identify children as early as possible and just give them the support and help that they need. And to do so, I created a standardized kind of protocol called Get Set Early Model, where S stands for screen, E stands for evaluate, and T stands for treat. And the idea of the model is to have medical providers in the community all work in a standardized fashion to identify children as soon as they can around the first birthday, provide an evaluation so you can understand their strengths and weaknesses. I don't even think you need the diagnostic label. You just need to know if a child is not meeting their milestones and then refer them out for immediate treatment. But the idea is it has to happen fast, right? You've got to screen, evaluate, and treat super fast. And we are doing things like um, well-baby checkups at 12, 18, and 24 months. Parents are coming in and filling out a screening tool. And then based on whether or not a baby passes or doesn't pass, they get referred to our center for further diagnostic evaluations and eye tracking and genetics and genomic testing and MRI scans. And just briefly, we recently published a paper in Journal of Pediatrics showing that we screened uh, 57,000 babies in San Diego County with a modal age of screen at 12 months. And when you screen a baby at 12 months, we got those children into getting their evaluation and their treatment referral, the ones that were screened at 12 months, by 15 months which is super young, much younger than the national average of three to five years. And then they were referred immediately for treatment, and these children were receiving around 10 hours a week of treatment, all around age 15 months. So this is a huge change in terms of what's going on with other kids in the country. And we're now tracking these kids into school age to see, of course, we believe and hope this has really helped them in school and, and you know, a lot of their other skills, but we're going to find out because we're in the middle of doing that study. Um, and currently to date, we have screened over 150,000 babies. We replicated the Get Set Early model in Phoenix, Arizona as well. So it's really effective at lowering the mean age of first diagnosis and treatment referral. Um, and the kids that come to our center who are referred by pediatricians using the Get Set Early model uh, get eye tracking. And that's a lot of what I want to talk with you about today because I think eye tracking has enormous potential to help children with autism. Um, I think it can reduce the age of first diagnosis. I think it can help reveal distinct biological subgroups because, as we all know, some kids with autism may never talk. Others are going off and getting a PhD. Massive heterogeneity. There's biological differences going on, obviously, between the kid that is unable to talk orally and the child who's going off and getting a PhD. Um, we also think that you could use eye tracking as a prognostic indicator. Like right now, a mom takes a child into the doctor or go for a developmental evaluation. The child's only 12 months old. No one can really tell you with any certainty what's going to happen to that child in one, two, or three years. But eye tracking is sort of a snapshot into how the brain is developing, and our research is showing that there are actual correlations with how that child is going to do now as well as a few years from now. And it's fast. You can do eye tracking in just a minute. Um, so I think there's a utility and as a prognostic indicator to get people to understand where that child is right now. I think we can use eye tracking to treat, to help children learn things and to guide treatment plans. And we might even be able to to use eye tracking as a mark of treatment response to see, okay, how is the children's eye gaze patterns now, and then does it change after treatment? It's objective, quantitative, and it doesn't rely on clinical judgment like uh, there are you know, sophisticated diagnostic tests out there like the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, which is an amazing tool and it's revolutionized research on the one hand, but on the other hand, 
Usually you have to be a licensed PhD clinician. It takes months, even years to get good at it. It's really hard to do. So, you know, eye tracking is great because anyone can do it and it's really fast and objective. Um, and so what's interesting about eye tracking is it's only been really recently that you can leverage it to, to actually try to do something like identify a baby with autism. Because when eye tracking researchers started in the 1960s, there was a person named Yarbus. Uh, this is what his eye tracking machine looked like. You had like a bar, and then you had suction cups that you had to put on your eyes. Um, but he, you know, he did show that you know using cameras that were going through these suction cups that you can you know figure out where people's eye fixations were when they looked at an image. What were they looking at? Here you can see, you know, we look a lot at the eyes and the mouth. Now, good luck trying to get a baby to do that, right? <laughs> so thankfully, um, eye tracking technology has improved quite a bit, and we now do this with babies regularly. And when I first started, I just thought, wow, how, how does this really work? It seems sort of like magic that you can tell. I mean, eye trackers have amazing precision, like less than like even a half of a degree or even less, extremely high remarkable precision to understand where someone is looking, or in this case, where a baby is looking. So the way that it works is you've got a child, they're sitting down in front of an eye tracking machine, and there are these infrared light beams that actually project out of the, uh, this is actually the eye tracker right there on the bottom, but it's invisible to the naked eye. You don't see it. And these infrared light beams um, project onto the baby's eye and create reflection patterns in the pupil and in the cornea. So the pupil is like that black circle in the middle, and the cornea is like the glass covering in the front of your eye, and there are these uh, reflection patterns. And the light actually illuminates the pupil. It, it kind of makes it bright. And then there are little cameras, little movie cameras in there that are actually taking pictures of the bright pupil. And then when you move your eyes, um, actually that the center of that pupil moves. The cameras can pick it up. And then, but the corneal reflection, the light that is actually there that you can see in the cornea, relatively remains stationary. So basically it's sort of the difference between the center of the pupil and the corneal reflection. And then they use mathematical algorithms to figure out the point of gaze. And so here you can see in that top image, it's a little tiny, but it's basically figuring out the change in this line from the center of the pupil. And when you move your eye, this other little dot kind of moves around, and then, then that's how the algorithms figure out where you're looking with amazing precision. And so I was like, okay, great. I can use eye tracking to help identify autism at the early stages possible, possibly even as young as 12 months. And I had to figure out, okay, what, what kind of eye tracking test can I develop to do this? And I know I, I've worked with children. I started actually my career in treatment, and then I moved over to neurosciences. But I know that little babies are extremely interested in the face. And this is one of my favorite research studies of all time. It was first implemented by Gorin in 1975 and replicated by Johnson in 1991. Basically... I don't know how they got to do this, but a mom just gave birth, signs of consent, the baby is nine minutes old, and these researchers bust into the room with these paddles that are either a face, scramble face, or blank, and they go like this, and they put it in front of the baby, and then they measure, is the baby looking at the face? Is the baby looking at the scramble face, or is the baby looking at the blank paddle? And not surprisingly, um, even though the baby's only nine minutes old, they are tracking that face-like constellation relative to these other two, because babies are born just super ready and interested to interact with other individuals. So I knew that, and I was like, okay, let's have some faces and stuff in this eye-tracking test. But I wanted to see and, you know, capitalize on strengths that children with autism might have. And I know from my years and years of clinical experience, um, I didn't want to have it be too complicated, so this particular eye-tracking test is just visual. There's no sound. Um, and But it, it, it capitalizes on maybe there are two sides. One shows kids actually dancing around doing yoga, and the other shows geometric repetitive patterns that just go around and go around and go around, and maybe 
maybe kids with autism who have these enhanced visuospatial abilities, maybe they would like to look at this side of the movie. Maybe, uh, you know, some kids with autism really like a lot of repetition. Um, some kids with autism have great math. So I set up a preferential looking paradigm where you can either look here or you can look there. And I hypothesized that maybe some kids with autism would be attracted to this more mathematical side than this other side. And so here, let me show you a movie that is, uh, this is actually the GeoPref test. That is the name of this very first eye tracking test that I developed in 2011. And this is actually eye tracking data. So this red dot shows you where the baby is looking. And this is data from a typically developing 14-month-old toddler. He's seated on his mom's lap. The infrared light beams are bouncing off his eyes. And this is the data that you get. So you can see where he's looking. And if the dot gets large, that means they're staring. That means the XY coordinate the fixation point is not changing. Okay, and now I'm going to show you um, data from a 15-month-old who received a diagnosis of autism. See if you can tell the difference without doing any fancy, you know, algorithms or anything. Yes, this is what the baby sees. And so that's why it's a preferential looking paradigm. It's a forced choice paradigm, essentially. You can only be looking at one place at one time. And so we're quantifying the amount of time a baby is watching the geometric side the, or the quote-unquote you know, social side. And so here's the data. Uh, this is a, a study published by my former postdoc, Teresa Wen, in 2022. It is the largest eye-tracking study ever published in autism with 1,863 toddlers, all collected from a single site. So you might see other large studies where they have people collecting data all over the country, and then they merge it. The nice thing about us is we have this high throughput system because of the get set early model that we have enormously large sample sizes. All the data is collected in the standardized way using licensed psychologists, standardized protocols, and so you get less noise. And using this, um, we had children who eventually, so basically the children get eye tracked by technicians blind to diagnosis. Then they go off and they see the psychologist. The psychologist does gold standard stuff and denotes what the diagnosis is of the child, puts it in a database. And then later we do analyses and stratify the kids based on what they're diagnosis was from the licensed clinical psychologist. And here we have 75, 725 children who ended up with autism. And the way I plotted this data, because it's a preferential looking paradigm, um, well, each dot is a child, and these are the different groups of kids. So like ASD is plotted in red. Uh, we had typical siblings of ASD program, probands. Um, my eyes are so bad. Uh, TDs, I think, are plotted in green. Um, and you can see each data point is a child. And so that means, oh, this child looked at geometric shapes 90% of the time. But because it's a forced choice paradigm, that means that they looked at the social images 10% of the time. Right? It has to add up to 100 for everybody. And if you put this little magic line across 69% fixation time, what do you notice? Right? Who are the kids that are looking at these geometric shapes, these repetitive patterns, more than 69% of the time? Largely kids with autism. We had 125 children with autism exceed that threshold. However, in contrast, out of the 1,138 children who did not have autism, 
only 29 of them exceeded that threshold. And some of those kids actually had other developmental issues. There are only around seven kids who were deemed typically developing that engaged in this. So what's nice about this geometric preference test for autism is there's really high specificity for autism and relatively few false positives. Because if you're going around trying to help physicians determine if a child is having some developmental issues, I think it's really important to scale your tests so that they are really accurate. I could have you know, made the little magic line lower and captured more of the autism spectrum, so increasing sensitivity, but at the expense of specificity. Um, so I didn't do that. <laughs> so here are the stats for it is sensitivity. So meaning I'm capturing around 17% of the spectrum um, using this test, and specificity is super high at 98%, and positive particular value is pretty good at 81%. Um, and we also checked whether or not this particular test worked really well depending on the ages. And so here we, we did age binning, you know, 12 to 15 months all the way up to 40 to 48 months. And each of these lines represents a different diagnostic accuracy metric like specificity, which is my favorite metric. And that's shown here in orange. Um, it does pretty well. doesn't matter your age. doesn't matter your race or ethnicity. We stratified it. So um, we're pretty excited that this eye tracking test seems to be useful. Um, but again, you know, it only captured 17% of kids. There's, you know, autism is a lot of heterogeneity. And we wanted to really understand what are the differences. You know, if we go back and just quickly look at this data, one thing I like about the data is, yes, these children had unusual eye gaze patterns. But look at these kids with autism. They did just as well or performed identically on this test to the typical kids, right? They did extremely well. What are the differences between the kids who had more typical eye gaze versus the kids who didn't have typical eye gaze? So we're trying to understand this heterogeneity, right? And so here we have all the kids with autism, got the magic line. So these are the kids on top that really liked the geometric shapes. Then you had some kids with autism who were kind of were more in the middle. Then we have kids down here who really liked the social images and what was different or unique about them. So one thing we also did, in addition to kind of looking at total looking time, um, so looking time is based on your fixations within a certain image, right? But then we also do this thing with our eyes called saccades. You move from here to there to there to there, right, to look at what you want to look at. You want to place some image in, in your fovea in the back of your, in your retina. So we wanted to check and see the saccade rates, if there are any differences between how the kids are fixating moving their eyes. The kids that liked the geometric shapes, we plotted them as red. And we are looking at the number of saccades per second when they are actually looking at social, the social side of the video versus when they're looking at the geometric side. And you can see this group is sort of an outlier because they had very few saccades when they're looking at the geometric shapes, meaning like they were staring. They had few fixations. But when they were looking at the social images, they actually had greater number of saccades. And there was kind of almost a linear relationship between the kids who liked the geometric shapes and kind of the middle responding kids and the kids who liked the social images. So we are seeing differences not just in total fixation time, but also how they're moving their eyes and their, and their saccades. Then we also kind of wanted to look at their clinical profiles, and we looked at their, their kind of social skills by looking at the autism diagnostic observation schedule total scores, which is like a diagnostic test that quantifies autism symptom severity. Um, and again, the kids who liked the social images, they're pink. And it, on this test, it's like the opposite of logic. A high score means you have more symptoms. Unlike an IQ test, a high score is great. We all want to have a great super high score on that. But on the ADAS, you don't want to have a high score because it means you're more symptomatic. So you can see this relationship. You like social images, you have a much lower ADAS score than the kids who liked the geometric images. Now going back to thinking about cognitive and adaptive behavior, Again, the kids who like the social images are doing better. The kids who like the geometric images are doing worse on all of these tests and on every test that you could look at. Um, but again, you know, this eye tracking test, if I want to go around identifying autism as early as possible, I'm only going to find 17% if I use that one test. So 
clearly I've got to fix that. So I developed kind of a whole eye tracking battery that looks at different, different types of visual social attention across multiple tasks. And the idea is we can have a baby do all of these, takes around 10 minutes, and we'll add them up. And then we can hopefully identify much larger amount of kids with autism on the spectrum who have different subtypes, and we can do a lot of interesting things with it. So that is what we did, and we've got these six tests, the GeoPref test, complex social, outdoor play, joint attention, which actually measures shifting attention, because we know some kids with autism, particularly those that might have more issues with their cerebellum. We know the cerebellar hypoplasia in autism, and the cerebellum is really involved and important for shifting your attention, so I made sure there was a shifting attention task in this battery. And then there's also some tests in this battery that relate to auditory social attention. Some children with autism, um, they may get overstimulated with speech. Um, it might be complicated, and so they may not. You might call their name, and they they, they may not want to respond to that. So develop some eye tracking tests using gaze contingent technology to identify kids who maybe have more challenges with speech processing. Um, and again, here are the tests that kind of fall into these different domains, and there are different brain regions that are potentially are, help, are interacting with and driving some of these issues that kids with autism have. Like, for example, we know that the superior temporal gyrus region, which is kind of right above your ear, is really important for language processing, um, and some kids with autism are having uh, language issues and language issues in that part of the brain in particular. So we know from a lot of research that children with autism might not want to uh, respond to mother speech, which is a kind of sing-songy speech that people speak to their babies. Uh, there's some work by Patricia Cool to show that some kids with autism just did not really want to listen to that using a preferential uh, listening paradigm. Again, uh, there's a study by Miller um, uh, that documented the amount of times that a child turned their head or responded when you called their name. That's much lower than in neurotypical kids. And then we also have a lot of brain imaging studies um, actually stemming a lot from our lab where children are actually scanned during natural sleep and you put headphones on and you can actually, these are like one, two, and three-year-olds, and you pipe in some sounds and you can check to see if language courtesies are active during natural sleep. And here's just a study that was done by our colleague uh, Michael Lombardo and myself and Eric Crochet and Lisa Eiler, um, showing here's brain activation and temporal cortex in typical toddlers. Here are kids with autism, uh, sort of like these are actually kids who also do well in eye tracking. They're showing some pretty nice brain activation. Um, and, but here are kids with autism who have poor speech and also poor eye tracking. And unfortunately, they're not showing a lot of brain activation. This is just one piece of evidence that there's actually, you know, I think that eye tracking is a good proxy for what the child's actually doing in the real world and what kind of experiences they're receiving to drive their brain development. So... Um, this is kind of a really uh, important and interesting piece. And for those of you who maybe don't know that much about mother speech, maybe you're a grad student at UCSD, you haven't had kids yet, um, it's, it's speech that's characterized by higher pitch, slower tempo, heightened positive affect, exaggerated contours, high rates of questions. And here's just a sample of what mother speech sounds like. Hi, Suti. How are you today? You are so cute. So very, very <laughs> cute. Look at that smile. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, moms and dads do this uh, to stimulate attention it's, and learning. There's lots of studies that show actually relationship between the quantity of um, mothery speech that families are exposing their child to and language development and social development later. Um, it improves, again, language acquisition, uh, effective engagement, reactivity, et cetera. And kids prefer to listen to mothery speech right from birth, just sort of like, you know, the face thing. Um, and so I said, well, how, because eye tracking is usually just a visual thing. How am I going to use it to understand if a child, what a child wants to listen to? So I thought, oh, I'll use gaze contingent eye tracking. Gaze contingent eye tracking is a super cool innovation where the child's fixation point controls the experiment. 
Cause, right? Because babies, they can't talk. Um, but if they look at one part of a screen, that will trigger a sound file or a movie file that will come up. But if they look at a different part of a screen, it will trigger something totally different. And then you can infer that, oh, the baby likes this or wants to listen to that because they're controlling the entire thing. But I first had to teach them about this gaze contingent concept, right? Because I want them to know that they're able to control it before I actually started collecting real data from my real experiment. So we just basically did what we call dog cat training. We show them, um, they sit down, and there's some cute puppy and kitten videos that, that come on, and, and the child eventually figures out that they are the ones controlling whether or not the kitten comes on or the dog comes on. And we, and we check whether or not they seem to do it. So clearly, uh, she figured it out, and she's very smart. She likes the cats the best. No. I'm a little bit of a cat person. I'm a crazy cat lady with three cats, um, and so not surprising that that's how we did our training. Um, and so we developed a paradigm where it's, again, it's, again, preferential looking, but this time the child controls, like, what sort of sounds they hear. And here's a typically developing child. They can look at this side of the video, and it plays a woman, like, doing cute stuff with, again, with cats. I didn't realize I did that. <laughs> uh, cute little cat stuffed animals. And then, or he can look over here and hear and see cars. Ginger and Coco go night-night in my bedding. They love my blankies. They are so cute. They purr and purr. And then Ginger wakes up and jumps on my head. And here's a toddler with autism. Queenie, have you met Ginger and so he made a different choice. Um, and the issue with or the story with this data is very similar to the GeoPref test. We're looking, you know, I always like to plot the raw data. You can see all the kids with autism that participated in this study. There are a total of 588 with 375 children meeting criteria for autism spectrum disorder. And if you plot it based on the attention to mothery speech, there's a little a chunk of children who didn't want to pay attention to mothery speech. They instead were really interested in the cars and the traffic noises. Um, and then here are other kids who had different issues, developmental issues as as well as typically developing kids, it's pretty rare for them to want to listen to the cars or see the cars. So these are other clues about different eye tracking tests that we can string together to capture more of the variants and capture more kids with autism. Again, here are the metrics, the diagnostic accuracy metrics. The one that is important to me is the specificity because it's a true negative. That means that if you are in fact not on the spectrum, what is the probability that you will pass this test? And that's 98%. The other good thing about gaze contingent technology is we're starting to dabble in what can we do to also help kids in addition to diagnosing and understanding relationship with symptom severity. I think that we can use that to teach children with autism vocabulary words, you know, using gaze contingent. This is new stuff that we're doing, um, like, 
You can pair a spatula with uh, some other word and teach them, okay, this is a spatula. Um, categories, again, with the cats and the dogs. You know, you can show things on a screen and teach them based on their ability to control what is happening, new words, new categories, new concepts, um, learning and attention skills, numbers, letters. So we're just exploring the power of gaze contingent technologies, kind of a teaching tool for autism. Um, but as I mentioned, we also have kids who do eye tracking come in and we do some brain imaging with a subset of kids using the natural sleep fMRI method. And it's basically very labor intensive. You would tell the parents, don't let your child have a nap. Let's take them down to the brain scanner um, about an hour past their normal bedtime so they pass out, put them on the bed. We don't use anesthesia or anything. We put on some headphones and we pipe in like stories or sounds like it's time for bed, little sheep, little sheep, or we tap, you know, pump in some other E sounds. Um, and a recent study by one of our students, postdoctoral students, um, Yochang Zhao, uh, just published in Nature Human Behavior. When she did that, she found that typically developing toddlers and toddlers with non-SD delays actually showed nice bilateral activation in response to different levels of affective speech. And then we had ASD toddlers. Um, some kids showed some uh, response to social affective speech, but overall there was a lot of heterogeneity. It was overall reduced. And so we were interested to see if there was any relationship between how they were doing that eye tracking, which again is a proxy for what they're seeing and doing in their own lives probably, and how their brain is developing. So we use this fancy tool called Similarity Network Fusion, which essentially is a way to cluster kids together by using a lot of similarity networks. So you're just basically putting a lot of data into an algorithm and then saying, oh, this chunk of kids are similar and that chunk of kids are similar. And then you can see how these different subtypes of these clusters line up with whatever variable you want to look at. So in our case, we um, entered into this clustering algorithm, brain activation levels as indexed by percent signal change, as well as clinical stuff like their IQ and their social behavior, uh, and we put all the kids in the hopper, and we ended up with four clusters. Here, the way you read this kind of an image is kids who are not ASD, most of these were typically developing, but we had a few language delay, are shown as little green circles, and kids who have autism are shown as red clusters, little red cl circles. And not surprisingly, the kids who didn't have autism largely formed two separate clusters, but yay, hooray, we've got some kids who are on the spectrum that, that performed just as well in terms of their brain and their, their clinical scores, and they ended up in these typically developing clusters. And then we had two clusters that had kids, exclusively kids with autism. And then we wanted to kind of check to see if there was any relationship between brain activation. And here we can see like these are clusters one and two. They had the highest brain activation and three and four were the ASC kids. And basically this cluster, cluster four, had the lowest levels of percent signal change um, during one of our fMRI experiments. So we're focusing on these two clusters, with cluster four being the most severe. We wanted to see, based on parent report of uh, socialization, the parents reported that the kids who we knew fell into this cluster had the lowest socialization scores. And when we look at eye tracking, using the, the kind of mothery speech paradigm, cluster four had the lowest levels of attention to motheries. So what's really nice is we do think eye tracking is telling us something about how the brain is developing, and these are really valid uh, subtypes if you use this kind of technology. And so 
I want to check to see, because this is all stuff done in the lab, and I'm very excited to say that we recently received a grant from the National Institute of Health to see if we can bring this into doctor's offices during mobility checkups and use it super fast to see if we can help them figure out who has autism, who wants to get referred for treatment immediately. Because sometimes this process could take forever. So we're hoping, you know, can uh, nurses use this? Is it more accurate than just a parent screening questionnaire? Do pediatricians like to use eye tracking during well baby checkups? And so we're starting to do that. And the way it works is a baby is just sits down, does eye tracking. We developed an app that will spit out an autism probability score to tell the physician, like 5200 means this child is at really um, like high likelihood to receive a diagnosis. Then we print out a nice report and the doctor gets to see it during the exam. So again, I'm all about speed. This all happens during the well baby checkup and the doctor knows the answer right at the, by, before the end of the checkup. And they can use their own clinical judgment to decide to refer out. Uh, for treatment immediately or another evaluation or whatever they feel like they want to do. And so this is an exciting new project, and I'll come back in a few years and tell you how that worked out. Um, And then the last part, I want to conclude my lecture with trying to understand, can we also use eye tracking to maybe develop a more precision medicine treatment approaches for kids with autism? And so I don't think you can do a lot just based on one eye tracking test alone. So what I did was I looked at a sample of 227 children with autism who got at least five of the eye tracking tests. And we plotted their performance across every single test to see if there is consistency in any one domain. And what we found, and we did this because there's a lot of heterogeneity, right, is that here are the names of the different eye tracking tests here on this x-axis, like the GeoPref test and the Mother East test. And then here on the y-axis, we just plotted the percent of time that the child was engaging with social images during this particular test. And you can see, even though we had 173 ASD kids, we just took a random sample of 10 just to show you because otherwise the graph would be really messy. Um, All of these kids are below 50% on each of these tests, meaning that they had very low social attention. doesn't matter what test you gave them. They really just did not pay attention to the social images. And this was around 11% of kids with autism in our sample. Then we also looked at kids um, who performed, there were some kids who performed extremely well in every single test, like 23-ish percent. Again, my eyes are horrible, I can't see. Uh, but that's a nice uh, you know, proportion uh, on the spectrum. And if we were to start making kind of hypotheses, these are the kids who are going to do super well. They might need different treatments. Maybe they don't need your traditional ABA that's really intensive with social behaviors because they already have really excellent social attention. Maybe we'll focus more on academics for them so that they can you know, be the valedictorians and focus on those other things because they have pretty nice social attention already. But not surprisingly, the average child with autism is mixed. Um, They're kind of up and down all over the place. And I think these are the kids that we're going to have to develop kind of more interesting and kind of specialized treatments for them. So basically, the idea is I think eye tracking can tell us maybe this child who falls in here might need something a little different than a child who falls here than a child who falls there. We don't, we we have just started thinking about what those different tests might look like. Um, And then here, we just kind of want to show that there really are differences in symptom severity between the three groups. You can see the bars are very different, spanning a number of tests. So there is some kind of external validity to this whole idea. Um, And then just in my last conclusion, I just want to summarize by saying I do think that eye tracking can reduce the age of first diagnosis. I think that um, we can reveal distinct biological subgroups for sure. We saw that there are differences between uh, different eye tracking subgroups and how their brain was reacting. Um, we also think that eye tracking tells us a lot about what the child's doing during the day and is a good index of their prognosis or kind of how their symptoms are going to be a few years down the line. Um, we think that we can develop 
treatments based on eye tracking profiles? And then the last thing, can you use eye tracking as a marker of treatment response? Like, can you change eye gaze patterns? Um, we don't know. That is to be determined. So in my last conclusion, again, circling back to honoring individuals on the spectrum who are pioneers showing that anything is possible, and we're all doing our part to make sure that everybody can get there. And thank you to you guys for listening, and thank you to all the funders and all the parents who participate in our work. We have time for one question. As an early intervention speech therapist, I'm interested in how you think this does apply to treatment. So, for example, we know that attention to a mother's face and attention to a mother's voice is what bootstraps language for typically developing kids. So do you think the early treatment is making mom's voice and making mom's face more salient, or is this just not going to reach some of these kids? really uh, interesting and important question like how are we going to leverage this information to to be able to improve the lives of kids with autism i think for children uh, in that first subgroup where it's they're extremely um less paying attention to any of those types of social things i think it's definitely going to have to be more of a gradual slow thing to try to incorporate more of that into their day um i think because this is a brand new area, the best group to start with is, is the majority of kids with autism where it's variable. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I think that we can really work with, with those children to do different activities that make it fun, like face painting, like, you know, things that are just going to naturally and enjoyably orient to the face or blowing bubbles or, you know, doing stuff like that. And, and if once we identify kids that have that variable pattern, like, okay, let's bootstrap that by doing face activities, brushing your hair, you know, things like that. So it's an iterative process. It's going to be slow. And, but you're right. The kids that are completely not interested are going to be the hardest. And we don't, you know, want to stress them out and traumatize them by, like, having their moms, you know, do all this engagement when that's harder for them. So we have to be more creative and, I think, slow and systematic with that particular subtype. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, Visit us online at uctv.tv.